the ground is this human connection and human heartedness and, um, and emptiness and vastness can liberate, you know, the heart and the mind. But I think it has to be, you know, within this context of, of the compassion, of caring, of empathy, of appreciating our own suffering and really being able to open and connect to the suffering of others. And um, that, that's the whole, that's where emptiness should have its, you know, an appreciation of emptiness and study of emptiness has its, its life and its function. Charlie Corn Picorni began practicing at the San Francisco Zen Center in 1991 and trained as a resident at Tassajara and Green Gulch Farms from 1994 to 2006. He received his master's degree in religious studies at Stanford University in 1994 and was ordained as a priest by Rev. Anderson in 1999. From 2008 to 2018, Charlie studied koans with Daniel Taraño, and in 2014, Charlie and his partner, Sarah Dojin Emerson, began serving as head priests at Stone Creek Zen Center, founded by Jisha Warner. Charlie received transmission in 2018. He also teaches at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, including courses on Buddhist philosophy, history, meditation, and ritual practice. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Quanum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. Charlie, in one of the Dharma talks you recently gave on right speech, you plumbed this idea of, you know, that a lot of us wrestle with in the in the Zen world, where, you know, we're we're presented with this issue of, you know, <laughs> opening your mouth and saying something really is already you're making a problem. And nevertheless, you know, we have to open our mouths, uh, even for teaching, um, or always, really, to help to be a part of the world. To So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit with uh, the listeners how, how you guide people along um, sort of the insights into right speech, what that really means, and and how, as practitioners, you know, we can work with that. Well, I, th- I feel like there is engaging a koan here, 
of um, this, you know, this con of, you know, basically if you speak, it's a mistake. If you, if you don't speak, it's a mistake. And, um, uh, and, and partially, one of the main kind of things I take away from that con is the inquiry is always alive. It's always a question. It's always a question of when to speak and what to say and, and how. And, um, and so I kind of feel like there's no, uh, settling or there's, you don't get an answer. And, and you, and then if you do speak or if you don't speak, that's, that's, then you can receive feedback and you, you know, and you might receive immediate feedback of appreciation, but then hear later on that, you know, there was a problem. And so like, we're just, we're in a situation where, um, I, I feel like we, we don't, we don't actually have answers. We don't work with answers. We, we work with, I, I just feel like we bring our sincere inquiry and our, um, and as much love and caring and clarity that we have. And we, we offer it and it's just, and it's an offering. And, uh, and for me, I, you know, this comes natural with some natural sense of humility. Um, and, uh, which I feel is healthy. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and a sense of, and a sense of, um, risk and exploration, curiosity, um, and, and kind of keeping, keeping our eyes open. What, how was it, you know, how is it to, how is it to make the offering? How is it received? And, uh, yeah. You had this, um, this line in there where you, where you talked about how speech creates an environment and it creates, it creates a space and, uh, it, that line really sort of stuck out to me because, well, for one, it really was very clear to me about, you know, that it's not just words that are coming out. Like you're, you're creating a dynamic. You're, you're, you're changing what's happening between two people or many people possibly every time you open your mouth. And so like the responsibility of this environment that you're creating or the, the shape of this space is, yeah. Anyways, I was just really struck by that line. Yeah. I, I, well, I yeah, I think we, we create worlds together all the time and, and speech is a big part of it. And, uh, and working on, you know, and working on multiple levels too, you know, like conceptually, but then also just, you know, like, emotionally and how we feel, how we're connecting. And, uh, yeah. And, and, uh, this, um, you know, I, I feel like p part of our practice is opening to a sense of, uh, reality, you know, beyond, um, our thinking. But, um, I think, I think our reality is always being shaped by, our language and reality is always shaping our language. It's a, it's a constant interplay and uh, where we live. Yeah. Is there an example, do you think that comes to mind when you're, when you look at your students or maybe even in your own journey of developing as a, well, first a student and then a teacher where like, 
right speech or the cultivation of right speech just became so clear to you? Well, the, the, the place where it's alive right now is, um, mm. is looking at anti-racism <laughs> mm. and bringing up anti-racism, bringing up race um, as, a, as something I feel called, it's called to address and a place where I, I actually feel like, you know, part of the kind of standard white acculturation is don't talk about race. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, it's uncomfortable. It brings up difficult stuff. It brings up um, stuff that we have a lot of la- a lot lack of clarity around. And so um, when I do bring it up, I feel like I, I, uh, I'm bringing it up. It kind of against all this, this current of like, don't bring it up that I see in myself and experience in others, especially uh, white people. And, um, yeah, and and and, uh, and still, like, to, when I check this out, this always seems like to me this is like this is engaging the practice of skillful speech, and uh, and and you know, again with that sense of inquiry is like, you know, what what do you say? Was it helpful? Uh, what what was missed? And you know, having that openness because. Um, it's it's a growing process. It's a learning process. Yeah, and you see that I, I'm, you know, we're really seeing a lot of our sanghas across the United States and maybe even the world, um, just uh, start to figure out like what's what's our language around race, like what's the space that we've created and the environment that we've created, you know, to sort of run with your. Um, and then against the backdrop, I guess, of, you know, what has happened in the nation over this last year with George Floyd and the, the uprising the, with Black Lives Matter. But, you know, I think a lot of sanghas have sort of played a, um, a quieter role where a lot of sort of churches or, you know, Jewish temples are, have been a little more engaged. Um, and do you think that's because I mean I don't really know but maybe like Buddhists are thinking of it as like we're we join the sanghas as a refuge from all of this like drama that's out in the world or and and then what's our you know call for the practice to guide mm. you know it's like if speech creates a world then well I feel I feel like Part, part of where I first actually got involved with this was when I was at Tassajara mm-hmm. and um, uh, I was a director and a student there who was a person of color came and said, talk, started talking to me about that as a person of color in a mostly white uh, community, it was pretty hard for them to be with all these white people who don't understand how they how they actually uh, have a racial culture, a racialized culture, and, um, and aren't looking at it and can't talk about it. And so that kind of, um, that, that sort of awoke for me um, that there was something to look at here. And so then that, that was maybe um, like over 15 years ago. And 
And so that, that's been for me, I, I feel like, I, I feel like, I don't feel like people come for a refuge from it, but when you bring it up, people don't see it. People see it as something else than practice sometimes. Oh, right. right. So like, and so like, you know, so saying like, well, okay, we can, we can start talking about social justice, but let's not forget about the practice in the midst of all this talk about social justice, which I think, you know, there's, there is a point there, but, but I would say that I feel like the Bodhisattva vow is a, it's, it's a, for me, it's a vow of anti, anti-racism is totally in that vow. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't see how it's, it's, for me, it's like, there's no separation. And, uh, and so when we start getting in touch with the amount of suffering in our culture right now around race, um, I just feel more and more called to link. How do we address this? How, this is not something peripheral to practice. This is part of our practice. And this is in the room. You know, it's right here. Uh, whoever's here, we're in a kind of, this is a, we're, we're living out um, our racial conditioning. And, uh, and we have this practice that can address deep conditioning and, we also have a practice I feel like it can support us to work with stuff that's uncomfortable. And so I feel like we have, we have some good supports in both the aspiration and in the kind of this kind of still cultivation of stillness. And uh, I, so I, I, I want to kind of bring up engaging those in this direction of anti-racism and really looking at, I think there's a kind of, there's a, there's a, Changing policy, changing how things are enacted on you know institutional and systemic levels, and there's also just inner work, and I I feel like they go together, and so I don't, I don't feel like our center our, our meditation centers will be doing a lot of policy work, but I feel like it, but I don't see it separate either. I feel like it's it's all of a piece, and we all, we I feel we, there's a lot to work on myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think sometimes when I talk to people elsewhere, just in you know different settings, um, you know, I talk to them about how our actions are derivative of decisions we make, and our decisions are derivative of the thoughts we have, and the thoughts we have are derivative of the spiritual condition. And so, if you want to change the policy, then you have to change the spiritual condition of the person first, like like. When I think about the sanghas or, you know, whatever spiritual community you're in, like our goal, like liberation is not just liberation from this body, but, or whatever you're, whatever you think liberation means. Yeah. I feel like, um, uh, for me, like liberation is, uh, from the, from kind of, uh, living in, living in or through delusion or living in or through grasping. And, uh, and that's something I do myself, but it's also something we do relationally. And so we're doing, we're doing this all the time with each other. Are we living together through delusion or grasping? Um, And, you know, and if there's stuff we're not looking at, (laughs) then, then, you know, then we are uh, some dogs just come in. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I love it. (laughs) I love the dogs. (laughs) And so I feel like um, I feel like awakening is something. I look at the actualization of awakening as something 
that's unfolding in, in my life, kind of, and you could say on the cushion, but also throughout, throughout, <laughs> but also throughout my relations, you know, how, how is awakening being actualized in every meeting or any meeting? How, how am I, am I, am I showing up completely? And, uh, and, you know, and I see this, you know, and this is part this is partially Soto Zen, right? We, we don't, in Soto Zen, we don't look at practice as something we do towards getting awakening, but all practice is an expression of awakening. And, uh, and again, with this kind of inquiry all the time, what is the expression of awakening here? How is that, how, how is awakening being expressed when I'm sitting? How is awakening being expressed in a conversation or in a Dharma talk? Mm-hmm. Or driving. <laughs> protest yeah exactly. yeah definitely right yeah i am um, you also you you've mentioned or that you consider zazen like a deep listening practice and so like as much as we are there to to speak you know skillful speech practice skillful speech that this practice of zazen also is about this deep listening and i i guess what i really appreciated about what you said a minute ago is sort of the mutuality that exists in in the work right it's not just me on a cushion trying to figure out what the heck the dharma is right but it, me operating within a dharma field of you know all beings i think when i came to practice i thought i'm i'm going to do this meditation practice which is something i do my as an individual and um and get something out of it <laughs> and uh and what i really feel appreciate about our practice tradition right now is uh it's a it's a something we do together. Um, it's a collective practice. And both in terms of like where we have our practice of sitting together in a room and that that's actually, that's not, um, you know, that's partially just to help us sit still for 30 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever. I think it's a nice support. But there's also something very deep there about what the practice actually is, is we're sitting together. And the sitting is supporting each other to sit. Um, and then, if it, and then, I, and then, I think in terms of you know Dogen's teachings, this extends beyond uh, beyond just the people you're sitting with. It, you know, you're you're really sitting with the with that, with all beings, sitting with the whole world, and uh, and that 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 is the practice. Mm. Mm-hmm. And 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 that the awakening is that everything's included here. Um. So that you know, so that that's it's it's not it's not it's not an incidental point to Zazen that you're sitting in a world, you know, you know, you're waking up to how your individual life actually includes everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know it's so funny. Like when the dogs were running in the background a minute ago, yeah. um, I was initially I was like, oh my god, that noise is going to get picked up, and then <laughs> and then. 
actually it's like, yeah, well, the moment that you and I are in right now, regardless of whenever somebody's listening to this, or actually they're going to be in the same moment with us, right? Yes. Is like there are dogs running in the, in the background. Yeah. And that actually is part of like the perfect podcast isn't because it's silent. It's because we're just here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like the, the perfect thing isn't the way that you think it is. It's just the one that it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so the dogs in the podcast also are perfect, which is kind of, just yeah. kind of, you know, I think so many of us are trying to find out what, where can it be perfect or, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of a, you know, I, I started meditating at San Francisco Zen Center in the city where there's mm-hmm. cars driving by, there's conversations walking right outside the meditation hall all the time. Yeah. And, um, and uh, you just, that's just part of Zazen. And then right. I went to Tassajara. Tassajara is in the middle of the, of the national forest. It's, um, and, and when we sit there, it, there you, you know, the whole community sitting together, there's, it's just the sound of like the birds and the trees and the wind. And, um, but then one practice period, there was a big construction project going on. And, <laughs> and then like, and we'd be sitting all day and like, you know and like like they're redoing a whole building and uh and i think it and uh i think anyway i think a lot of us you know didn't like it at first but then realized this is totally our zazen this is totally the practice and um and uh just appreciating that like you know there are these people you know who are coming to the valley to work along with us you know doing our sitting yeah, there's a, there's a. I was sharing this story recently on a podcast, but is uh, there's a place I sit every summer, and um, for an extended, extended sit, and uh, it's in Rhode Island. And there's somewhere I don't know, somewhere nearby during the middle of the day. It, to me, it always sounds like there's like some sort of race or something, or a carnival or something. So they've got this loudspeaker, and they're like, blah, 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 blah. and I have no, I, I can't tell what they're saying, but I, and the first time it happens, I'm like, oh, shoot, here we go again. <laughs> because it happens all the time. And, uh, but usually after the second or third time, I'm like, right, this is just the moment right now. Yeah. Yeah, and, and for me, this, you know, and so in terms of like deep listening mm-hmm. and kind of a basic attitude of, of sitting is I, I feel is, like, is this kind of welcoming, welcoming what's happening, mm. um, both, both the sounds, um, beings, and then also, you know, where I find it's also really challenging is like, like my fear, my wound, my hurt, even even kind of welcoming um, my own patterns of grasping because I'm not, you know, if I'm not in touch with them, how am I going to get in touch with these, with this grasping? So kind of welcoming it in uh, to feel it and, and really give it space. Hmm. And, um, and I also do this, like, if I get, if I have like some, a moment or two, something happens earlier in the day where I got angry, I, I welcome that into Zazen. I don't see it as a distraction. I kind of think, here's a chance to feel that a little more thoroughly. Here's a chance to check that out again. And so I, yeah, I feel like welcoming is this kind of deep stance 
like a, a, a posture of, of meditation for me. Mm-hmm. Now, so you do all this practice, you've done all this practice. Um, and now you're also teaching in a university. So you're, a, you know, I'm assuming in addition to whatever your Zen situation is, right? Or something beyond <laughs> words and letters, right? Here you are, like, grading papers. So uh, on, like, how well you understood Buddhism. Uh, and I'm wondering how you navigate sort of the instructional dimensions of you know being a teacher mm. not just not a teacher like i'm looking at you now in your casa but like um but a teacher in a university setting of like trying to help people understand what this is about yeah well the um the where i teach at the institute of buddhist studies um it's um almost everybody there is um they're there for academic studies as practitioners. So uh-huh. they're, either, they're either on a path of becoming a minister, a priest, or a teacher, or often a, or a chaplain. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of a liminal realm. It's like it's not totally an academic context. It's pra- practice is, is part of what everyone shares, although many different traditions. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's actually a lot of interweaving in terms of like, that my, my practice experience has a place in what I'm teaching and so on. And then there's also this really, which I, I really enjoy, but this challenging thing of um, learning, learning, basically learning about all, all the Buddhist traditions and, like, and being able to represent them, you know, in a, in a reasonable way. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, and sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll have to teach something about Pureland and there's a Pureland minister or two or three in the class. So I have to, <laughs> I have to you know, I have to kind of like, you know, when, when Pureland came up at Tassahara, it often wasn't, you know, it's like, isn't it great how Pureland Buddhism is? It was sort of like, you know, right. oh, it's so much like Christianity or something, you know, and it was kind of a little denigrating. And, and, and so uh, for me, it's been wonderful to kind of, appreciate the depth of these traditions and how much, how much actually pure land and Zen intertwine and share and, and, um, and, you know, and, but but that's been the big, for me, like a a challenge has been um, developing this really broad sense of the tradition and being very careful about anything, anything essential about what Buddhism is, you know, uh, because Buddhist traditions are so diverse, you know, I don't know if there's anything you can say <laughs> that right. applies to all the traditions, and uh, and I and and I, but yeah, I, I really love it. I seem to love the whole tradition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what was it that got you started? Like, so you know, here you are. You've you're now teaching. You're working in a university. Um, if you can remember back, do you remember what? Was the drive that got you going? Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, from when I was young, maybe maybe nine or ten years old, I would lie down in bed at night and think about. It would occur to me like, "You're gonna die. Mm. You're gonna die." Um, and it was real problem for me, like from very young. Like I was very uncomfortable with 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 this predicament. Um, and, and it was also striking to me that like, no, you know, 
we, you hear about death all the time, but nobody ever seemed to talk about it. And, um, and I had no religious upbringing. And um, I eventually had like two views of death. One was that death was just an end. And I, I didn't like that. And one was that death was like, I'd become this like point of consciousness floating in space forever. And that was also pretty horrific. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and another thing death would bring up for me is like, you, you are going to die, and, but you have all this fear. And so, you know, but, but the scariest thing you could imagine is going to happen. Do you really want to live out of this fear mm. of like, you know, you know, like of taking risks or, or taking chances on things, not necessarily being like, you know, just like putting yourself out there, you know, cause I was, I was I'm a pretty shy, uh, fearful person, you know, my dis my overall, my general disposition. And, uh, and so anyway, this just grew and grew through high school and college. And I started reading about Zen. Um, and then basically when I graduated college, I decided I was going to find out about something. I was going to try some practice because like, I was pretty unhappy about, I was still pretty unhappy about the reality of death and the fact that nobody seemed to really be um, addressing it. <laughs> and, um, and so that was maybe, so I started sitting in 91 and then I got to Tassajara in 94. And then in that fall, I felt like um, I have met the call you know, whatever death was calling for me, whatever this, however this fact was living for me, I had kind of met it. And I, and I, and I remember feeling like, um, okay, you know, like this is this, this practice of devoting myself to being present. This is, this is the response I'm feeling. This is the response to death. This is the appropriate response to this fact. And, um, to this day, I continue to encounter this fact of death and, see how it's impacting me and have different ways that it unfolds, you know? And I'd say the most recent unfolding for me was just really uh, feeling this, like I couldn't choose to embrace my mortal life or I could try to kind of resist it a little bit, like being like, I just don't want to be mortal. Um, and how that, you know, and then you're going to die anyway. So the resisting isn't helping it not happen. <laughs> and so how to really embrace that this is, that this is, this, this is a totally fleeting life. <sighs> and also I, I would say another big kind of development for me was I think I really looked at death as being external. And now I really see death as being, being my nature. You know, that, my nature as a living being is death. Like there isn't, there isn't any, there isn't any such thing as a, as a, some life that's apart from death. So for somebody who maybe is not, who is, you know, sort of new to the practice, how would, how would you help them unpack that a little bit? For me, a starting place is just, is, you know, if I have a fear of death, getting in touch with the fear, starting to feel that fear. How exactly is it in the body? Where is it in the body? What's the texture? How does it, you know, how does it shift from moment to moment? And start becoming comfortable with that, that that's something, you know, we can become completely comfortable with uncomfortable experiences. We can really learn to just be fully present right there. 
And, uh, and for me, that's, that's kind of where I would start, you know, if I was talking to my, to my younger self. <laughs> mm-hmm. And how, how would you sort of share the story of like life and death really as being inseparable? Like how to, that would be a concept. I think people who are new mm. would want to know a little bit more about what you mean. Mm. Mm. Well, I guess, um, I mean, one, one contemplation that comes to mind is like, well, what, what would something that doesn't die be? What would something eternal mm-hmm. be? You know, mm-hmm. and like, it actually, it doesn't make any sense. It wouldn't, you mm-hmm. know, and it, um, you know, this is kind of like Nagarjuna, right? I mean, like, you know, right. you know, if you, you'd have no relationship to anything, it couldn't change. It couldn't grow. It couldn't see. It couldn't wake up. Um, it would. It would. Be, it would be eternal, but it would be dead and and relationless, and it would. <laughs> it would be dead. <laughs> yeah. So it's still inseparable from death. Uh, you know, and uh, and that uh, and just, it, just I think just somehow like you know all living things die to you know and it's just it's it's just it's in our nature um uh and and it's actually it's just it's just everything that's beautiful or wonderful or good about life is completely inseparable from death you know i get a little sometimes it feels very abstract when you're saying there's this death that's part of it but then there's also this you know the true self what is that that doesn't die or you mm. know or is just constantly in a state of death or you know however people might different teachers would explain it differently i suppose but um you know you're a part of something that isn't the death of this body that's partially goes back to like you know how awakening to how everything is included here you know mm-hmm. that like uh or you know that we are, I, you know, the step that the view, the deluded view is we're somehow separate from the world, right. and that you know, and one way you can look at death is death would be the end of that separation, but from a point of view of of appreciating how we're we're not separate from the world, we're just the way the world sees itself and it can experience itself, mm-hmm. and um, which is which is miraculous, and we're really really tiny, you know. I think that you know sometimes like you know different things would make me have a problem with death. And sometimes we'd be just thinking of my death. Sometimes we'd be thinking about the end of the earth. Sometimes we'd be just thinking, just thinking about how tiny we are in this universe. Could be like, Ooh, <laughs> we're so tiny. Isn't that terrifying? But still we're like, we, but we are the tiny part of the universe that no, that has actually this kind of, that has some consciousness of how vast the universe is. Right. Yeah. You know, that's in a kind of unique way or, or a kind of, or in a kind of, in a way that's different from the way that I think that what, however the, however else the universe knows itself, um, we're a particular way it knows itself in its vastness and it's, and, and our tininess. <laughs> you know, and just kind of maybe to bring it back to the, where we started in this conversation about right speech, mm. it, you know, I feel like sometimes people can hit that vastness and feel like it, none of it matters because it's so vast. Mm-hmm. And yet, even something as simple as speech is still really important, like skillful speech. So how do you help people sort of 
embrace the vastness of it all. And yeah, you still have to be skillful with what's coming out of your mouth. I think if it's starting to take me away from, you know, a a kind of grounded sense of my own humanity and empathy for others, if it it starts to take me away from that, you know, if emptiness takes me away from that, I feel like drop it, you know, Mm. Um, I feel like it's, I feel like the, the ground is this human, human connection and human heartedness and, um, and emptiness and vastness can liberate, you know, the heart and the mind. But, uh, but I think it has to be, you know, within this context of, of the compassion, of caring, of empathy, of, of appreciating our own suffering and really being able to open and connect to the suffering of others. And um, that, that's the whole, that's where emptiness should have its, you know, an appreciation of emptiness and study of emptiness has its, its life and its function. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Charlie Corn Picorni encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the Stone Creek Zen Center at stonecreekzencenter.org. And I'll include a link to the Zen Center in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the online Sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week. <laughs>